Welcome to the introductory podcast slash audiobook slash hybrid lecture for Geography 370, Introduction to Cultural Geography. I am your instructor this semester, John Paul Henry. The goal of this podcast is to supplement your weekly readings. It is an oral component. I hope you can return to weekly to reinforce what you're reading in the textbook. In this introductory episode, I will be reading and discussing the introduction, or chapter one, to Anderson's Understanding Cultural Geography textbook. Thank you for listening, and let's get started. So quoting directly from Anderson's textbook, uh, this is the introductory chapter one. As it does so, this book uses theoretical ideas to change our understanding of the world. Any theoretical idea helps us to scaffold and construct our framing of reality. Their words make our worlds. As we pause to reflect on our own positionality in relation to the contemporary situation, we should also pause to reflect on the palette of theoretical ideas that are most useful to critique and reconstruct the worlds of which we are a part. It is with this point in mind that this third edition of Understanding Cultural Geography argues that cultural geographers must be careful. We must employ theoretical ideas that do not simply draw our attention to risks and threat, but also those that highlight the ways in which culture for cultures forge complementary and coexist. What languages best enable us to engage with the choreographies of conflict and conviviality? In other words, what tools do we have at our disposal? What language, what words can we use to describe the world? As we will revisit time and again in this in this course, words matter. The words we use to describe our world matter. So back to Anderson, in employing theoretical vocabularies that remain rooted in modern binaries, this book suggests that cultural geographers not only have a brilliant means through which to understand the conflict that appears to be uh, the dominant process bordering our world, but we also run the risk of suggesting that conflict is the only way of comprehending and conducting our lives. So let me pause here to reflect on this. What Anderson is saying is that if we root our thinking in binary complexities in us versus them or this versus that without an appreciation for the gray in the middle, then we risk reducing our thinking and leaving out the complexity in life. So back to the book. Despite many scholars seeking to destabilize these modern binaries, their powerful legacy sometimes means that we are hot-wired for focusing on conflict. And to some extent, this is understandable given its visibility and prevalence in con the contemporary era. However, in doing so, we pay less attention to the cosmopolitanism and compatibility that marks many aspects of our cultural life. If we look away for a moment from the spectacular, the headline making, the clickbait, we may also see the extraordinary 
ordinary. The everyday coexistence and conviviality which emerges and comes to define our places. In short, we must engage with this diversity of practices in both the changing margins and the mainstream and connect theoretical insights that understand all of these mainstays of our life. We must be wary of or that our discipline does not become the contemporary equivalent of its forebears and through elevating conflict function as a weapon of or uh, and for the status quo. And let me pause here again. What what Anderson is getting at here is uh, language and conflict can be used as a means to incite fear and to um, be monetized essentially. So he's warning us against um, an over-reliance on a focus on conflict within, within the discipline specifically, but the discipline has impacts right beyond the borders of academia. Um, many of you students will go on to become educators, journalists, uh, GIS technicians, or uh, maybe work in academia, but maybe work in business um, or other sectors, right? So the way you think about the world will trickle into those sectors as well. So back to Anderson, if the discipline can take and make a place for all approaches, this is an important statement in and of itself, as well as becoming a provisional medley from which we can all choose the most appropriate strokes with which to swim through the cultural world. And this is a nod to the many different cultural theories we'll be engaging with this semester. At the end of this beginning, I want to ask you one final question. As, I, as we lie awake through the dark hours of our changing times, imagining modernist dreams and nightmares, what would happen if we approached the world differently? What would happen if an axiom of geography was not just that, quote, people generate prejudice and prejudice governs, but also that, quote, people generate reflexivity and affinity governs place? Perhaps we may find some prejudice is inevitable, that some lines must never be crossed and therefore must be strongly defended. But perhaps we can also conduct the act of geography by critically thinking through what worlds it is possible to create together. We relate, therefore we are. Box 1.1 on page four, Anderson discusses in depth this, this problem of binary thinking. And I'm going to read this verbatim uh, because I think it's really useful to get uh, a grasp on the significance of this. So he starts by saying, if words make worlds, then the words we use to theorize the world are of primary importance. Indeed, even deciding what things get words, where one thing ends and another begins, are seismically significant. Ask yourself, what is an object? 
Is it actually an object or a process? How does it relate to one, uh, to one another or other things? How are they different? Is one more valuable, better, or worse in comparison to other objects? On what criteria and who gets to choose? As we will see in this book, the words we use to name things matter. The power to name not only helps us to understand the world, but also renders it real. The world effectively becomes the meanings that we give to it. And words are one mechanism to order and border our lives. Ordering and bordering is something that we'll see time and again, and Anderson uses this concept to order and border to talk about how society is spatialized through power. And so when things are ordered, you give them hierarchy, you give them importance, um, you also give them spatial designations, and, and that is also bordering. We put, we put um, lines and boundaries around things, right? You fence off your yard, or we have borders around our property line that tell us not only how we order our property, but where the edges are in relation to other people. So he goes on, uh, Anderson goes on, as Barnes suggests above, one key way in which words have been harnessed to order the world is through the deployment of binaries. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, so he quotes Barnes, uh, 2005, one means by which we impose order is by deploying binaries of various kinds. They enable us to sleep at night, uh, to have the modernist dream. Binaries are the dream. And he goes on to quote Neat, um, saying, sadly, the American dream is dead, but if I get elected president, I will bring it back. Bigger, better, and stronger than ever before. Oh, this is uh, President uh, Donald Trump when running successfully for election in 2000, uh, 2015. As Barnes suggested above, one key way in which words have been harnessed to order the world is through the deployment of binaries. The deployment of binary classifications has led to the messy complexity of life, death, and everything else having order imposed on it using an either-or template or categorization. Olson explains that this filing of the world is premised on the assumption that Quote, nothing can be one thing and its opposite at the same time. So this is the, the idea of binary thinking, that nothing can be one thing and its opposite at the same time. It must be separate. That's the idea. From, uh, from the get-go, then, this categorization of the components of the chaotic world, we are filled into one of only two pigeonholes. Everything must be either one thing or the other. This system suggests, therefore, that one thing cannot be anything other than what it has been classified as. In other words, A cannot be two things at once. It cannot be both A and not A. This, this system demands that no middle ground exists between classifications. All categorizations are clear and stark in this binary version of the world. There is only one thing or its other. There is no in-between in binary thinking. 
binary classification system has dominated Western thinking and practice for centuries. As Barnes tells us, it has been, quote, the dream that has enabled the world as we know it to develop, to live, and to sleep at night. And as we have seen, some power brokers not only wish to perpetuate this classification, but strengthen it. We will interrogate the implications of this situation throughout this book. But at this point, I wish to raise the effects of this categorization has had on how we relate to the world and to the vast array of others we share with it. So uh, I urge you to think for a moment and reflect on how is the American dream binary? How can we think about the American dream being argued as binary? Is the American dream the same thing for everyone? So Anderson goes on, if the binary version of the world yeah, in the, in the binary version of the world, everything has to be one thing or the other, then this categorical imperative also demands that you, me, and everyone else in it need to pick a side. We have to be a roundy or a squarey um, inherent to this binary classification in the creation of an us and a not us, in other words, an us and them, as a consequence, it, re it requires us to position ourselves as part of one culture and identify those who are not us or who are other. We are required to do this whether we identify with the given classifications or not. For example, if I wanted to be an octagon rather than a roundy, um, or even break apart from two-dimensional orthodoxy and choose to be a didactahedron. Uh, there's some <laughs> uh, terminology for you. Can you position yourself in this binary world with respect to all the cultural ideas and practices with which you have affinity? Which side are you on? So I, I think breaking out of this kind of um, geometry speak here. We can we can look at and think about um, the us and the other in, in kind of more practical terms, right? Um, we are Jayhawks here at the University of Kansas, and we identify with uh, the mascot, the logo, and we are often put in contradiction to who? Well, it's often the Mizzou Tigers, right? That's kind of the big rival across the border in Missouri. So um, we, we build this identity around othering other people. Um, we are Kansans, we are so-and-so, and they are something else. Um, uh, American, right? Versus our neighbors to the North, our neighbors to the South, you know, Canadian, Mexican. Um, other other nationalities. What are some other ways that we other people? Coming to mind, I think of a few probably as being skin color, you know, historically has been a very important one. How we look, what language do we speak? These are all ways of 
classifying people into otherness. So Anderson goes on, one of the attractions of applying such rigid categories is their reductive simplicity. A simpler world is one that human cultures can deal with and create policies for, a place where one can act in authoritative ways and where expertise is democratized. Yet, in some cases, an either-or categorization system does not begin to exhaust the possibilities that comprise our and everything else's identity positions. Similarly, and at the same time, this classification system can also act to reduce the possibilities on the possibilities on offer for openly engaging in these apparent others. In sum, through simplifying the world, the modernist dream has replaced it with a version where conflict between us and them has become normal and routine. In contemporary times, binary classifications have been deployed to reduce the relations between two cultures to nothing but war. And I'm, I'm really reminded of the, the near binary classification of the United States electoral system. Democrats, Republicans, liberal, conservative, and and whether or not this is true, it seems to be that way in representations anyway. And how our complex political ideologies and views on the world are often reduced to simple, um, simple talking points. As many scholars have argued, the problem when applying binary categories to border and uh, the world is the tendency to produce, quote, dogma and intolerance, and sometimes much worse, end quote. This categorization, as we have seen in the above examples, uh, has the effect of, quote, normalizing, end quote, a way of approaching the world that is founded on an us versus them mentality. In this view, life is war, and culture is inevitably conflictual. This modernist dream is not only influenced by many politicians, but also by many human geographers. Despite a groundswell of non and a modern thinking in recent decades. So is the binary categorization the best way to name border and render the world real through our theorizations and through our experiences? Is culture inevitably conflictual or can it be coexisting? Can we be more than one thing at one time? Can we create and occupy the middle ground? Can life not only be military but also be based on mutuality? In this new edition of Understanding Cultural Geography, um, this new edition of Understanding Cultural Geography extends its focus on the fragmentation and proliferation of cultural views and actions to using words that draw attention to the multiple worlds we experience by using theoretical ideas that are influenced not only by binary classifications, but also by ideas of assemblage, emergence, effect, and performance. It is hoped the reader can understand the actor-centered multiplicities that have come to define 
our cultural geographies, and our actions within them. Thank <laughs> you.